welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I am so damn excited to bring you this episode this week. We're talking about an album that is very, very special to me, the 1967 album by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Are you experienced? Now, um, this is a little confusing because I'm kind of recording these out of order. So, uh, you know, it's not confusing enough that I'll be moving the podcast to another distributor. It's going to be offline. I don't know if you'll need to um, attach to a new version of the show on your app player yet. Um, I'll find that out when I move the Uriah Heat podcast. Um, by the time this comes out, I'll probably be in the middle of that. But I'm recording this um, towards the end of June. So I haven't even started on that yet. Lots of stuff up in the air, but I'll be doing this uh, this show during the month of August if all goes well. Uh, so here's what happened. Um, just a, a quick thing, because this is probably going to cause a little bit of confusion. Um, in one of my later episodes towards the end of July, I can't remember which one, but I realized there was a, a reference to this album. And I thought, how long ago did I cover it? Because I was certain that I had done an episode on this album. It's one of my favorite albums, such a huge, huge influence for me. And um, I started looking through my spreadsheet and then I did a search and I did a couple of searches. I'm like, I I don't have this even on my list. How did I never even write this down as an album I intended to cover? I checked a couple of different podcast players to make sure that maybe I just didn't have it on my list incorrectly and I had covered it. But no, I've never done this album. And I quite honestly, I'm completely shocked. Um, no excuses. I, I just missed it and I'm mystified. So I uh, ended up having an open slot for this particular episode. So I thought, you know, what the hell? I'm going to get this one in there uh, because ever since I realized I hadn't done it, because I was kind of sad. I thought, oh, you know, I've already done that one. I'm not going to get to do that one again. And that's kind of the case for a lot of the albums that I've done Um like, I'm really excited to do them and then they're over and that's that and that's it. So I'm like, well, I'm, you know, unless there's a, another reference to it or whatever, but I'm not going to cover the whole album again. So I was a little bit sad. And so when I realized I hadn't done it, I thought, oh, great. What I'll do is I'll just go ahead and do it and uh, get to enjoy it uh, as if it's the first time because it's the first time. So uh, that being said, I'll give you a little bit of history uh, with this album. This is very much a summer album for me. So this is a great time for me to be releasing this episode. Um, for me, um, I don't remember how old I was, but I was fairly young. I'm going to say sometime between like 13 and 15 when this album came into view for me, probably, or I, I'm going to extend that. I'm going to say 12 to 15 when this album came into view for me fell in love with it imme immediately i knew the song purple haze because i'd heard that before but i don't think uh oh i knew hey joe because deep purple had done it but i didn't know the hendrix version um i knew it was a cover of his but i had never heard it didn't really care to listen to it because i was like well, i really like purple's version so there's no reason for me to check out anything else i was very you know laser focused on what i liked at the time but when this album, for whatever reason, came into my view, I remember seeing it at the Salvation Army that was just um, just up the street from Chatham's on Gratiot Avenue in Mount Clemens, Michigan. Uh, I don't know if it's still there or not. I know the Chatham's is gone. That whole shopping center has changed over uh, pretty much completely from what it was when I grew up. 
I think Chatham's is now a movie theater. I think the only thing that might still be there is Major Magic's, if if anything. That was like a Chuck E. Cheese kind of place. Um, but there were some amazing, amazing places up there. Perry Drugs. Um, I think there was a Montgomery Wards up there for a while. Um, what was the main store? That might be the main store I'm trying to think of. I think there was a Crowley's Jewelers up there, which I could care less about. But Perry Drugs was like the big thing. Um, really awesome place, regional shopping center. But anyway, across Gratiot from regional shopping center. And I think it was, um, a little further North, if I remember right, not too far North from regional, but uh, a little further North and on the opposite side of the street was the Salvation Army. Got a lot of albums up there for like 25 cents. Um, got a couple of eight tracks. I don't think I had this album on eight track, um, but I did get this vinyl there for 25 cents and in pretty good condition too. Um, a few months ago, I was lucky enough to find another vinyl version of this. And in it, it was marked as very good condition, but honestly, it's excellent condition. The cover is a little bit worn, but shit, the album came out in 1967. I believe this may be an initial pressing. I'm not positive. I haven't really looked into it yet. But in any case, the vinyl is in spectacular shape. Um, I mean, there's, you know, that typical little vinyl crackle. But apart from that, there's no skips, there's no fuzz, there's no warp, there's nothing. It's in a, just a beautiful condition. I'm so happy to have that back in my collection because honestly, this would be one of the ones that my collection would not be anywhere near complete, even if this was the only album it was missing. I played this one, I, I don't know how I didn't wear out the needle or wear out the record or both for as many times as I had played this on vinyl. Um, probably would rival Down to Earth by Rainbow, which is, I'm sure, the album I've listened to the most in my life. Um, uh, a lot of that on vinyl. But uh, in any case, yeah, this this album is super special to me. So um, I'll, I'll have a, a couple of memories of songs along the way. But uh, I really want to get into the music. Now, there are a couple of differences, I guess, between the UK version and the American version, because, of course, there were <sighs> same old song and dance. Oh, wait, that's Aerosmith. Um, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about the album cover. There were two different album covers. The European version had one that apparently Jimmy didn't really like. So he went out and hired a photographer to do a more psychedelic album cover. The uh, background color for the whole thing is gold. Uh, all the lettering is in purple. Um, yes, I would say incredibly psychedelic. In the middle is a round picture that looks like it was taken with a round lens. And it's uh, Jimmy in the middle with Mitch Mitchell uh, on one side. And then on the other side, of course, you have uh, Noel Redding, who make up the band. Noel is the bass player. Mitch was the drummer. I, I have to give these guys total props right off the bat for being able to keep up with Jimmy. Because he seems to be one of those people that, and I, I, I admire this about people, that was just never satisfied. I mean, he had to call songs complete to be able to record them and put, the, on the album, put them on the album and release them. That you have to do that. Or a producer has to say, no, this one's done. I don't care. You're moving on to something else. Um, but he was one of those people that just... He played constantly. He he strove to improve himself. He really didn't think he was that good, or at least publicly, he didn't let on to thinking that he was that good. Um, he was in interviews where I've seen people talk to him about his talent. He always seemed 
like, I, I don't believe you guys really think I'm as good as you say I am. Or I mean, he was just so shy about it. And, um, and I appreciate that because people who think they're good don't have anything to work towards. They, they don't fight for anything. They don't strive for anything. Um, I mean, there's always exceptions, but if you think that you're great, then what's the point of practicing? What are you working towards? If you want to play for fun, then you're just playing for fun, but you're not perfecting new techniques. You're not striving for anything new because you think you're already there. So I love that about Hendrix. And I think that's a lot of the reason that we got such amazing music from him is because he was always searching for new things. Um, so the album is uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience. I love the font. It's I don't even know how to explain it. Just Google the album cover. Or if you're listening um, through like the Facebook uh, page link or whatever, I've got the album cover posted there or anywhere I post it on social media. I always post the album cover with the uh, episode. Um, it's it. I love that the very top of it notes that it's in stereo because, you know, you're talking 1967 albums were coming out in, in mono. And so it's uh, it was a big deal to have albums in stereo at the time. Um, so the Jimi Hendrix experience is written straight. Then you've got the circle, um, all the trees and everything, like the, the whole background and all that is purple behind the guys. Um, and then under that, in a curvature along with the, the circle, um, you have the word, are you, ex and it's like all one word. It's, are you experienced? Um, which is the title, obviously, of the album cover. Um, really cool. Uh, they, they did capitalize the Jimi Hendrix experience. And then are you experienced is all in small letters, all just kind of mushed together into one word. Um, very psychedelic though, for sure. Um, I love the gold against the purple. I think that's a fantastic color combination. Um, Jimmy's got some sort of fluffy Mrs. Roper scarf, uh, that he's wearing, uh, looks like there's a lot of feathers and stuff in it, which uh, I think I've seen pictures of him wearing stuff like that before. Um, the guy on the right, I think is Mitch Mitchell, or I'm sorry, the guy on the left, I think is Mitch Mitchell wearing like a bright yellow coat with black buttons, which again, contrasts the purple matches the the gold tone of the album cover almost perfectly. Uh, it could have been just painted on too on the photo. And then, uh, you know, on the right, of course, we've got Noel Redding. He's got some, I can't really tell what he's wearing, if it's just colors on his shirt or what, but uh, there's some faded looking gold in, in there as well. Um, really nice cover though. It, it definitely just screams the late 60s. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, actually just screams it out loud. And I love uh, opening up my record box and seeing that color in there um, because that makes me uh, just just absolutely thrilled to have that album back in my collection. Um, the music, you know, here's the thing, guys. I have never once dug into the story behind any of this. I don't know the, the reasoning, the inspiration behind any of the songs. Obviously, Purple Haze is very much likely a drug song. Um, are you experienced though? I, it could be drugs. It could be sex. It could be, are you experienced in the Jimi Hendrix experience? I mean, it, it, there's a lot of things it could be, but there's some really cool stuff about that song, uh, that I'll get into when we get to that. It is of course the, the last song on the album. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll be building up to that the whole way, but I say that we just get right into the music because I'm so excited to do it. Uh, the very famous song by the Jimi Hendrix experience, number one on the album, Purple Haze. Purple 
Yeah, give me that warm analog sound with that fuzz in there any day. Uh, absolutely love that part. It's it's such a part of character of the album for me that if I, you know, I mean, I could go in there and clean it up. I could take the fuzz out. I could probably spend very little time doing it. I just need to find those frequencies and I could remove them. I don't know how much it would affect the music. Probably not much. Um, but I really like having it in there. It makes me feel like I'm listening to it on vinyl, even though I'm not. Uh, I'm wondering, though, what I think this is a CD that I bought because when we left when we left Michigan um, and I had to give up the record collection, I um, I just massively bought cassettes from Kmart and and just recorded all of those albums because I didn't know when I would be able to get them again um, slowly as CDs became a thing because we didn't have CDs when we left Michigan. It was cassette and vinyl still. So um, once CDs came out, um, it was a while before I you know had any money to buy them. But uh, I know I replaced a lot of them. I can't remember, honestly, if I got this album on CD or if I just kept the cassette tape. So this might actually be a cassette copy of the original vinyl that I had. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure. I just remember using my printer to print a lot of cassette tape inserts with all the songs on them, like the hours that I spent lining everything up so that it fit in the cassette case pro properly. And I could read the title of the album if it was in the box, you know, the cassette box and all that stuff. Um, I had green paper and pink paper and purple paper and I had it all. I just didn't want to use white because that just was boring. Uh, it's music, you know. And um, yeah, I, I still remember the cassette boxes. And then when I ran out of like the actual carriers, like the little suitcases that had the slots for cassette tapes, then I just started using small boxes. And, uh, you know, anyway. Um, so I'm not sure what version I'm actually listening to right now. This might be a copy of the original vinyl that I burned to cassette. I'm not sure. It does have that that vinyl hiss. And I don't know if they would have cleaned that up for the CD version that I would have gotten or not, because this probably would have been an early one I would have picked. And I'm sure that I never bought it on cassette. So uh, that's what we're listening to is whatever that is. But it's uh, it's a nice, bright sound. It sounds uh, you know, good volume and everything. So if I tape this off of the album, um, way to go me for getting a good volume out of this. Um, but this is such a great song. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's rock and roll at its early finest, you know, um, the, the energy is there. It might sound a little bit thin because you're talking about a three piece band, but honestly, like the bass really fills up a lot of the sound because it's very present in the mix. The drums are very active. Um, I love the sound that Mitch Mitchell's getting out of his kit here. I could use, you know, I mean, I'm always almost always saying that I could use a little bit more bass drum and uh, and I could, you know, um, just to make it a little bit punchier. But honestly, like this sounds really good. The only thing that I don't like about this is that the solo is actually a little bit buried. Um, you hear some almost uh, a godly like Jimi Hendrix uh, creeping through the ears saying purple haze and uh, and stuff but but where those um sections are where he gets a little bit wild that's um I, I just think they're a little bit buried in the mix I could use those up a little bit more to feature what he was playing but you can still hear it I mean it's not um it's not unattainable to your ears it's just I would like it a little bit boosted so um it stands out a little bit more but apart from that, I mean, this is such a classic song. What what can I say about it that hasn't been said a million times since 1967? But it's honestly, to me, a song that um, it, it showed people what was possible. You know, the Beatles did a lot, um, but I think this 
uh, it, it um it just showed that there was another possibility for rock and roll and and what you could do with a three-piece band you know uh, absolutely amazing now the recording of this album i i did see took place over a period of months it wasn't like they just went in for a, you know a few days with with prepared songs and just cut them to tape um this was actually like multiple studios months of recording um so i don't know what was recorded when um but all i can say is the final sound um i absolutely absolutely love the production on this album um we're going to get into our second song which was another one that really I think opened up the possibilities for rock and roll. It got away from those standard beats, um, kind of like what the Beatles did with songs like Tomorrow Never Knows, where they played something that was off of the standard and really made the song uh, more dynamic and interesting. We're talking about Manic Depression. Okay, I have to laugh at myself for a second and uh, I have to take some credit away from myself. I, I just, you know, basically high fived myself before this song for getting such a good level on the recording. And while I was listening back to this, um, I realized something. If I recorded this in Michigan, this would be, you know, before I had a mixer, before I knew anything about audio engineering, um, before I, I, you know, really even barely knew what a mixer looked like. This would have been recorded on a cassette in my stereo. So the album would have recorded direct to cassette. I wouldn't have set that level. I wouldn't have known how to do that. Um, so uh, I take away my credit for getting a good sound on this. My my stereo did it for me. I'm pretty sure it was purchased at Sears. So thank you to the Sears Corporation um, for selling my parents that stereo <laughs> that they gave to me for Christmas one year. And um, yeah, there's that. So uh, no credit to me. I, I do remember it had an 8-track player in it. It had uh, AM, FM radio, cassette, and uh, and of course, the uh, the record player. Really cool thing. I got so much use out of that. Um, I don't think it was Marantz. I can't remember what company off the top of my head that Sears was selling. Um, but it was, it was of that caliber anyway. I mean, a lot of people had them. It was mass produced, but uh, never had a problem with it. It was always great quality. And um, uh, was very, very reliable. I think, too, when people talk about like listening to vinyl these days and how it doesn't sound the same, we're also not listening through the same speakers. For one, a lot of people are listening through earbuds or headphones. I mean, I'm listening through studio headphones, but if I were to play this on my iPod and listen through like generic headphones or, or earbuds, or if I were to listen through my phone and listen to my, um, you know, my wireless uh, earbuds. It's going to sound different. And there was something I think that part of the quality came from 
the the delivery system, not just the vinyl, but the speakers had a certain sound to them as well. So that's one thing that we haven't really um, replicated. You know, in all this talk, it's all about getting that vinyl sound, but we're not thinking about how we listen to the vinyl. I don't hear anybody talking about that. Um, it's always just about the sound, the way that it was recorded, the way it was mixed, the way it was produced, the way it was mastered, all that stuff. Um, you know, it was done on reel to reel and this kind of tape and this machine and whatever. And they use this, you know, they use this Abbey Road setup or whatever. Yes, those are all important components, but that's only half the battle. I mean, the other side is, did you listen to them through those giant plastic headphones with the ridiculously long current curly cord that could have choked your dog? Or did you listen through those, you know, whatever the speakers were that came with your personal stereo? Um, all kinds of things. So, you know, all those things matter. But I can say I'm really loving the sound of this. It just sounds so good to me. Um, but anyway, that would explain why uh, if this is a cassette recording and now I'm almost positive that it is from the original vinyl that I had, uh, that explains why it sounds the way it does. So there. <laughs> now let's talk about Manic Depression. What a killer song. A uh, lot of energy on this one. I don't know what it was about Mitch Mitchell, but this drummer, man, this guy was just every bit of live footage I've seen. He was just a, a huge ball of energy. Um, so creative, so much into what he was playing. He really felt like he experimented a lot, but yet he knew he was like a metronome inside and he knew where to come back. Like even if he was doing some cra crazy fill that wasn't really working out. He always came back in right where he was supposed to. Um, amazing drummer. And I don't think he's gotten enough credit in the business for everything he contributed to, to even just this band alone, let alone anything else he had gone along to do. Because he's not a household name. He's not somebody I hear people talking about. I would imagine if you ask, you know, even a lot of people my age, which, you know, I'm 50, so this is still, you know, Hendrix was a little bit older than that. How many people could tell you who the drummer for Jimi Hendrix was? I would imagine not a lot of people, but man, that Mitch Mitchell was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, especially on this song. I think he's just, uh, I just love his playing. I love the creativity of getting away from that standard drum beat. Because uh, he could have just, you know, played da, 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 or done a shuffle uh, or something through this whole song. But just that whole, you know, snare hits, toms, all that uh, really just was something very, very creative. I have to wonder if Tomorrow Never Knows might not have been an inspiration for something like this, because that was where they just really went off of that straight 4-4 uh, beat. Um, but really cool. Jimmy's playing on this is amazing. I cannot imagine trying to play what he plays and sing this at the same time. And I'm sure he did this live all the time. I, I would imagine this was a staple in his set list. Um, but such an amazing song between the, the bass and the drums, such a grooving rhythm section. I mean, really, this song is, is just so powerful and it, it just, it, it makes you want to have like a physical response, like whether you're tapping your foot, um, you know, slapping your thumb against your knee, like whatever it is that you do. I'm not a dancer, so I would probably never get my ass out of the chair to do anything. But as a drummer, I would certainly tap my foot, you know, hit my thumb against my other hand or my thigh or whatever to keep the beat, probably air drum it, you know, whatever. But it definitely gives you like, it has that energy that makes you want to physically respond to it. And uh, songs like that have such power over the listeners. I absolutely love it. Love it. 
So our next song uh, is probably, I'm going to say it's my least favorite on the album, to be honest. Um, I'd already fallen in love with the Deep Purple version of Hey Joe. And so um, they really took it to some interesting places with what was done on keyboards and and all that uh, and the buildup of it. But uh, Hendrix's version is a little bit more straightforward. So let's check it out. One thing I, I do love about this version is that almost uh, choir sounding background of uh, female singers. It uh, it just adds so much to it. You know, I mean, you're talking about the the death of someone. So it sounds like a little bit angelic um, as if they're calling him out for what he did, but uh, or where he what he was about to do. Um, but the other thing that I love about this song is it honestly just feels like a jam. It does not feel like they sat down and recorded this in the studio, uh, you know, doing overdubs or whatever. It really feels like they just they just jammed this out and recorded it and went, hey, that was awesome. We got it. You know, um, I don't know how much longer they played the song after the fade out, but I have a feeling like this just went on and on. And, and after like 10 minutes, somebody was like, OK, I, I think we got enough. Like you guys can stop playing now. But there is some real gold in here. Uh, Mitch Mitchell's got some killer fills, um, some really aggressive fills for for a mid-tempo song, but it works. And that's one thing that I love about his style is that he could find a way to make that kind of stuff happen and have it not be out of place. You know, Um, there's a few drummers that can do that, but that was one thing I, I would have to say that he was probably an early master of that. Ringo did a lot of extended fills, but they were uh, slower and choppier. They worked for the Beatles songs, but, um, you know, the the energy that Mitch is playing with and the creativity, it's um, it, it just takes it to a whole new level. And you can see where, uh, you know, this kind of drumming would would go, especially through the late 60s and early 70s when you get into prog rock and, and things like that. I don't know if Jimmy was really considered progressive or not. I I not heard that uh, relationship, but it's possible. I mean, some of these songs are are definitely outside of what the standard of rock and roll was. And if you think 1967, who was doing this kind of stuff? You know, this was really, really innovative. And, um, you know, I always say it's so sad that that we lost Jimmy so young and and then when I went to iTunes to get the link to put in the show notes for where you guys can purchase the album, um, I was like, holy crap, there's all these albums. But between like uh, deluxe versions, which which there's a deluxe version of this, we're just covering the standard studio album on this episode. But between like deluxe versions and all the soundtracks that his music was featured in, I'm like, OK, well, that makes far more sense. And there's some live stuff, uh, you know, obviously 
Uh, he, he had uh, some very famous live recordings as well. Amazing, just absolutely amazing what what he gave us in such a small time, you know, um, but uh, definitely was a huge influence on the face of rock and roll. And this song uh, was was one of those songs. No doubt about that. Uh, we're going to move along to song number four. This is called Love or Confusion. I would almost say that this song is almost free form, you know, I mean, it does have uh, some structure to it, but it really just feels like open uh, territory for everybody. I mean, the, the drums are all over the place, which I, I love about it. Um, there's very little straight beat to any of, of the song. Um, that's really cool. The bass is just grooving. I mean, I, I'll say that about every song in this album. Um, guitars, just having those long chords just leaves it, uh, open for everybody to do what they want. And of course, you know, the vocals are, are coming in. The vocals have that structure to them. Um, but it really feels just like a free form open territory song to me. Um, I know, uh, I said earlier, I don't know if Jimmy was ever considered, um, progressive, uh, rock, but I do know psychedelic is a word that was very heavily associated with him. And uh, this definitely has a, a little bit of that to it. Just that, you know, kind of like, um, I, I guess the best way to describe this is when I listen to it, I just feel like I'm floating in uh, like a pool or, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, liquid that's in motion. And uh, I'm not really getting pushed around. It's not uncomfortable or annoying, but I just kind of feel like, you know, I'm just kind of, floating all over the place. And uh, I like that. I, I get, I understand why people do drugs if it's, that's the feeling that they get from doing it. Um, and I can only equate that to the closest I've ever been, which is like nitrous oxide uh, from back in the days when Dennis used to use nitrous oxide. And uh, I tell that story on a later episode, by the way, uh, when I had my wisdom teeth removed. But it's just, it's just a open field. And I like that because you really don't necessarily know where the song's going. And then, you know, when they hit the, the title of the song, it kind of all comes back together. But very, very cool. I love this about his style that it's just so freeform, you know. Um, our next song is called May This Be Love. Waterfall, nothing. 
That's what happens when you only have one snare drum and you take the strainer off. That's what that sounds like. Uh, I like that. I, I like that um, he's using the the raw snare drum instead of the strainer, and it doesn't have that that uh, you know pop and snap back of the metal snare uh, on the bottom head. Uh, I really like that. Every once in a while, you've got to change things up, and uh, and I really like the sound of it. But it's such a you know another like float down the river and just enjoy kind of song. And uh, and I'm not using that as an example because you know waterfalls in the lyrics, but but really, I mean, you could just be in an inner tube and floating down a lazy river, having this song on and just enjoying some sunshine and some warmth and some fresh spring air. It would absolutely be perfect, absolutely perfect. Um, it's just such a casual song, even with the drums being really busy, they don't feel busy. Like they're not really intense. There's not a lot of fast fills or anything in there. It's really just almost uh, African in the rhythm section. You know, um, like I listen to African percussion whenever I can, because it's fascinating to me, some of the rhythms and layers that they come up with. And this feels very much like one person doing their part in an African percussion section. Um, it's really, really cool. Such a great song. And I love the guitar sound. Um, at first, it, it almost sounds like something Zappa would have done. It sounds almost comedic the way it opens up. But I love the delay on it. I love the distortion he's using because it's not really heavy. There's just something really unique about it. And I love the sound. And, uh, you know, with the delay in there, it just makes it that much better. But there was something I want to say it was on Joe's Garage from Frank Zappa that kind of reminds me of that intro. Um, it might've been a uh, part of Fembot in a white t-shirt. In fact, I'm almost positive it is, but I can't quite hear it because I'm hearing, you know, I'm hearing uh, may this be love in my head, but uh, great song. Uh, absolutely. Uh, another one that just makes me go, wow, there's so much more that's possible in music outside of standard rock and roll. And, you know, this was as I was getting into some progressive rock too, like uh, King Crimson and Emerson Lake and Palmer, um, you know, Deep Purple, I don't, I don't really, I guess some of their stuff might be considered progressive, but they were rock and roll, you know, or, or hard rock as, as they like to be considered the earlier stuff, like the first three albums that were, were way more psychedelic, but, um, really started to see more possibilities in music outside of four, four and riffs and, and stuff like that. So that's part of really a big part of why this was such a huge influence as an album for me. Um, so that's going to bring us to our next song. It's called, I don't live today.
this is the one song I really don't care for the mix on. Um, those secondary guitars that are coming in, like I like the idea behind it. Man, they're just too loud. Um, that doesn't really work for me uh, as much. I think if they were to have been more subtle where you could uh, hear them a little bit, but more feel them, I think would have been a little bit more enjoyable to my ear. But apart from that, um, I love the the increase in tempo throughout the song. Um, I love to, the, in, in his choruses, and I've heard this in other songs, um, where there's like really no beat to the to the chorus. I mean, there's a tempo, but the beat is really just like we come back to the to the one on the snare, but everything else is like drum fills and patterns and you know different crazy things. Um, I, I really like that because again, it just shows how free music can be. You don't have to stick to these structures that we're so accustomed to in commercial music or radio playable music, um, you know, pop and that kind of stuff, especially now like country music and country and and uh, pop have done this big crossover. Um, it, and, and they're always like, they have to have that click track and they're just not free form anymore. And I really miss that about music. I think everything's just so standardized to be on a click now that we, we don't have a lot of this kind of stuff. And it's hard to do a click when you're speeding up. Um, that's really kind of hard to follow, especially as a drummer. So, uh, I like the fact that they did this. There were no such things as click tracks back in 67. So this is all just players sitting down and playing, um, which I mean, the metronome had been invented. Beethoven paved the way for that, but um, they weren't using them in recording studios for rock bands. You know, you wouldn't have been able to hear it anyway. So, um, yeah, really cool song, though. Uh, nice energy. They play with the volumes a little bit towards the end and they get very studio creative, which uh, is another thing I, I think, um, you know, the whole production for Hendrix was was known for. And uh, I'm just going to touch on that really quick because one of the producers or I'm sorry, one of the engineers on this album was none other than Eddie Kramer. So there you go. I don't know how um, knowledgeable he was in 67, but I mean, he's, you know, a historically famous audio engineer and definitely knows his stuff. But I don't know. Was he new? Was he young uh, to the engineering world at the time? I have no idea. What I do know is he's gone on to, produce, uh, to work on a lot of amazing records. He's got some great plugins out there for uh, people who are audio engineers or mixing their own music, whether they're engineers or not. Um, great stuff. I've listened to a lot of interviews and stuff. Um, just amazing, amazing talent. Uh, we also have Mike Ross and Dave Siddle uh, were the other engineers. I think it just depended on what studio, what songs were recorded at because they recorded at multiple studios. So uh, it's amazing to me that this album is as cohesive as it is considering that because you're talking different mixing boards, different equipments, different engineers. So you've got different EQ techniques. I mean, it's it's really amazing to me. I don't understand how that comes together. I really don't. Because to me, part of what you choose when you go to a recording studio was the sound of the studio. There was a reason people wanted to record at Abbey Road or certain other studios. You know, there's a reason that Deep Purple would record in castles because of the sound. And so um, it's really weird to me that you could record in three completely different studios with three completely different engineers and come out with such a cohesive sounding album um, that just boggles my mind. Uh, but you know what? That's what you get. I, I mean, there's the, the proof of concept is right here in this album, to be honest, because I think that um, this album is very cohesive. And uh, even as an experienced engineer, there's really not much I could pick apart of, wow, the drums sound really different on this song to that song or whatever. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it was done. Maybe all the drums were done in, in one studio and 
overdubs were done in two other studios or overdubs on guitar and one vocals on another. Like I have no idea how it was put together. Um, all I can say is at the end of the day, we have a pretty amazing sounding album and you wouldn't know that it was like, it wasn't just, they locked themselves in the studio for a week and recorded this, honestly. So that was, I don't live today. A great song. Now we're going to calm things down a little bit because the wind cries, Mary. Jets are in the boxes, and the clowns have all gone to bed. You can hear happiness staggering on down the street, footprints dressed in red, and the wind whispers. This to me has always been uh, about the vocals. You know, musically, it's uh, it's very calm and subdued. It's not very dynamic. There is some really nice solo uh, work in here, though. I uh, really like the feel of it. But this is really more like a standard um, rock song or pop song at the time, um, the ballad of the album, if you will. Um, but some great singing, great performance. Um, the rhythm section is is really just present. They're just keeping the song uh, on track as they should. But nothing too particularly special about this one. I think there's been some covers of this one, um, but it's never been one that particularly attracted my interest just because it, it gets away from the things that I've come to know Hendrix for, which is the craziness, the experimentation, the insanity in the music and, and just that passion. This is just a laid back uh, Bob Dylan style storytelling. And there's nothing wrong with it. But, um, you know, when I think of Hendrix, I want... Uh, I don't live today. I want manic depression, uh, that that kind of thing. So uh, we're going to move on to our next song, another one that is very, very popular and well-known. I guess that's redundant. Fire! Fire! <laughs> This song to me is one of the most important pieces of music history. And the reason I say that is because I refer to it a lot. There were so many songs that came out after the fact that had this kind of, you know, vocals in between the riff structure. I remember uh, 
Roger Glover from Deep Purple heard the song and said, wouldn't it be great if we had a song that did that? And they wrote Speed King on their first, uh, you know, hard rock album, Deep Purple and Rock. And on the Rye Heat podcast, there were several songs where I pointed this out over the course of reviews on this podcast. I've said this has that Jimmy, Jimi Hendrix fire feel to it, you know, that, um, you know, riff and then open space with the vocal in it. Sometimes that uh, some some instrument will intrude on the vocal a little bit, but between the guitar and the vocal, there's like a, a almost like a call and answer type thing. Um, I love the song. I think this is some of the best solo work uh, that we hear from Jimmy on guitar on this one uh, or on the on this album, I think is in this song. But drums are very energetic. I love, again, that it's just not a you know straight pattern. It's it's a lot of just uh, feeling, you know moving it forward, keeping, keeping the, the tempo, but really just a lot of, I'm just going to play a couple of kicks in the snare and then a couple of snares and a kick or two. And then I'm going to do the, like, it just, he just goes with what's ever in the moment. And I really love that. I, I feel the whole album was done this way. And it's so weird to me because every one of these songs, I mean, I know they were recorded in a studio. I'm sure that many overdubs were done as as I've heard about Jimmy's uh, studio work, the way he liked to do things, which is why it took so many months to record his album. But I, I just I just love the feel that these were really live jams and that they just captured and record one time playing the song and they got what they got. It was like the first take or second take of every song and they're very spontaneous and um, just in the moment kind of recordings. And I think that's a thing for me that's a big attraction. You really lose that in a lot of today's production because everything is so precise. And if the symbol was hit a second too early, well, we'll just move it over in the audio so it it doesn't feel out of place. You know, everything just has to be so streamlined and clean. And this album is just gushing with personality. It really is. And uh, I, I love every single thing about it, from the performances to the writing, to the production, to the you know, everything. Uh, absolutely. It's uh, just fantastic. And this is definitely a song where um, it just feels so alive to me. You know, every time I've heard, and I've heard this song hundreds of times, and I can tell you even now listening to it again, um, it, it just, it feels just as fresh as ever. I mean, the only thing that really dates it is the the sound, the production of it, the particular sound of Jimmy's guitar, the sound of the drums and um, all that. The bass is, is, sounds great. Um, but, you know, just that overall production and, and the way things were recorded back in the late 60s. Apart from that, I mean, this song is as, as vibrant as ever to me. Um, our next song is where we really start hitting the psychedelic plane. It's called Third Stone from the Sun. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
So earlier I made the comparison of uh, just listening to a song on a lazy river. This song would be more like, holy shit, where is this boat going? <laughs> it's, it is a, a real journey, this song. I mean, it just takes you all over the place. It's got some great parts in it, though. Uh, this is one I've always enjoyed. Another one that feels just completely freeform. I honestly, as, a, as an individual songwriter and performer where I record everything I write, or if I'm hiring somebody, I, I, you know, I've written the part and I give it to them and they play it. But, uh, you know, as, as a solo artist, I can put a song together that has weird transitions and parts like this and uh, keep everything together. I don't know how you do that as a group. I, I honestly don't because there's so much open space so much room that that uh, people could just jump in and do whatever, change the tempo, change the feel of the song at any given moment. But they're all so together. I, I don't know how a song like this comes together with multiple people, to be honest. But it's fantastic. I love Jimmy's sound and his playing on this. The bass is just grooving all the way from beginning to end. Um, drums on fire, absolutely on fire. Um, really kind of jazzy uh, in in spots, which I like. But it's just another one of those psychedelic journeys where I'm like, I get why people do drugs if this is how music feels when you do them. I won't ever do them myself because it's just not my thing. But I certainly don't disparage anyone who does. Makes total sense to me when I listen to a song like this. Um, although I'm not really ready for Pink Floyd yet. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, an excellent song to listen to and uh, a great one. I mean, that would just be a great song for study too to really break down all the parts and see how everything works individually and how it all fits together. I think that would be a, an excellent song for like a thesis paper. Um, our next song is another one that's very well known, often covered Foxy Lady. Yeah, not really much to say about this one because uh, it, it goes back to the the standard, uh, pretty straightforward rock and roll. I will say another fantastic solo from Jimmy. I like just those little whispers that we get in in each ear, just that foxy, you know, that comes in. Um, very creative with the layers and, and use of the studio, what he had available to him. Um, I don't know if they were recording on 16 track or 8 track, but in any case, if you're recording on an 8 track, you can bounce things together. It's always dangerous to do so, but... When that's all you've got, that's all you've got. He might have been recording on 16. I'm not sure. But in any case, uh, I don't, don't know if that even existed yet. I'm going to look. Now I'm going to Google it because it's going to bother me if I don't. So I will entertain you while I Google and say, yeah, it's a pretty straightforward song. But it makes me wonder, too, where, uh, you know, maybe Richie Blackmore or uh, whoever it was that, that he worked with to uh, work on the original version of Mandrake Root. Um, you know, it has that same sort of feel, dun, 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 
um, might have been an inspiration for that because I know he was a big fan of uh, Hendrix. So when were 16 track analog devices, oh, analog cameras, tape recorders invented? Here we go. Let's see what the internet, which knows everything about everything, has to say. Uh, oh, okay. Well, this is interesting because it was invented in 1960. Well, it was released, I should say. Uh, looks like Ampex in 1966 uh, made a two-inch 16-track machine. So it's very possible. I don't know if all those studios would have had one because I'm sure they were insanely expensive. Uh, but it looks like uh, 66 was the earliest one. Uh, and this was recorded in 67. So it's very possible that this had been recorded on a 16 track recorder um, and they didn't have to bounce all this stuff. Uh, very, very possible. And, um, you know, I hope for them that was the case because it would certainly give them more options in the uh, final mix. If you bounce tracks together, um, that's like baking the cake and saying, well, I really wish I had put more sugar in it. Well, it's baked in now. So you can't really add sugar into the, uh, you know, finite webbings of the cake after the fact. So, uh, yeah, they would have been stuck with whatever decisions they had made. And that would have been uh, tough for any future remixes or, or remasters if um, the multi-tracks were uh, burned, you know, burned together like that. So they, you know, I mean, now we could undo it. But we're only really getting to that point where the technology is good enough to be able to separate things. And I don't know how um, how much effort that would take with with where we're at now in, in track separation to undo things that were mixed together. Um, but it's almost like you can you can actually unbake a cake now in, in the audio world, whereas before you couldn't. I mean, you just couldn't. You were stuck with whatever you had. So um, but that's assuming that the, the actual multi-track tapes even exist because they may not. I mean, over time, unless they were stored and taken care of properly, they may have been just erased after the session was mastered. I mean, who knows? But in any case, uh, yeah, it's a good song. It, it's pretty straightforward, especially compared to some of the other stuff that we've heard. But it kind of goes along with Purple Haze, Wind Cries Mary, although I would say Purple Haze is far more adventurous, but it's a more up-tempo song, giving Mitch Mitchell more room to be creative and play and do a lot of fills and just have some fun with it. So uh, that was Foxy Lady. That brings us to my absolute favorite track on the album, uh, one I have listened to, I don't even know how many times I thought about it one day and I thought, you know, what a shame that they couldn't do this song live because it's such a great song. And I looked and you know what? They did it all the time. There are live versions out there of this song. What they did was they recorded the drums and then reversed the tape. So what we're hearing are backwards drums. And you're like, well, how the hell did they do that live? Well, they don't. They just play it straightforward. They play what he played as you hear it backwards, but he plays it straightforward. So uh, the opposite of the way he recorded it is how Mitch Mitchell plays the drums on the live versions. It's really super cool. I was so excited because I, I didn't think it was a song that they would have done, but it's fantastic. The last note is just absolutely haunting. I love the way that the song ends. It's a perfect end for the album. Makes me want to flip it over, go right back to side A and hear Purple Haze again. Um, I remember I was really getting into this song one particular summer. I think it was, well, it must have been the last summer before we left Michigan. And um, we were, for our key club trip, we did a, a thing to Bablo Island, which was an amusement park off the coast of 
Canada, it was like a, an hour and a half boat ride on the giant Boblo boat. I don't remember much about the boat ride there. I remember that was one of the uh, two times I rode a major roller coaster because I'm really not much about rides. And I would usually get, um, you know, car sick or whatever from the rides over and have headaches and not be able to ride things anyway, which was fine because I didn't care about bigger rides. I liked the smaller rides like the Scrambler and stuff like that, the Matterhorn until I got older and then couldn't do that either. But um, I rode the uh, what would have been the Sky Streak, which was their just big you know, long roller coaster with a bunch of hills. And then it turns around and comes back uh, on the other side of the track with more hills. Very simple, straightforward, no frills kind of roller coaster. Um, the other one that I rode was before that at Cedar Point, the corkscrew. And um, but I never rode the corkscrew at, Bi at uh, Boblo, which was a shame because it looked pretty cool. Um, but in any case, uh, I was really into this album at the time. So I had this song in my head like the whole day. I especially remember running around the boat chasing this girl who I never met, wouldn't have known what to do or say uh, if I did meet her. So it was a whole pointless exercise. Um, you know, it was like when I learned how to cruise, uh, you know, in, in the car, and then all you're doing is like driving around, not making contact with anybody. I should have just known that I wasn't big on people interaction back then and just left it alone. But I didn't. Uh, it took me many, many years to learn that lesson. So um, this is a song that I have uh, just just absolutely adored. Um, this is one of those songs I think I had on one of those cassette tapes where I would just record this song. And then as soon as it was over, I would put it on again and record it. So I had a whole half a side of cassette tape with just this on it. Um, there were a couple songs I did that with Victim of Illusion from uh, Michael Schenker was one. I talk about that in an upcoming episode um, when I review one of his albums. But um, yeah, I just absolutely love this song. So uh, I have to wonder, too, if this might not have been uh, part of the inspiration for Deep Purple's song Fault Line. It was on their third album, Deep, the self-titled Deep Purple 3, I guess it's referred to as. But um, they did uh, backwards drums on that, and they wrote that when they learned that they were going to be in California when there was an expected uh, earthquake, or it was during an earthquake Time. I don't know how they would have known that back then, but uh, that's what they have in the liner notes anyway. But the the drums and the piano and stuff was reversed, uh, just like this song. So I don't know if there was maybe an inspiration uh, from this to do that. If not, uh, very creative on both ends. But let's check this out. Um, certainly was something that uh, if anyone had done this, it would have been like the Beatles. I want to say Strawberry Fields Forever kind of has that feeling to it, but I don't know if that was actually recorded backwards or not. Um, from the attack, it doesn't really feel like it. I'm talking about the attack on the snare drum, um, but it definitely has like a weird sound to it. So whoever's idea it was, kudos, uh, absolutely brilliant. Definitely makes this song stand out as a unique song. And I just love what they did with it. So I'm going to shut up and just play the uh, clip. Here it is. Are you experienced? Then come on across to me We'll hold hands and then we'll watch the sunrise From the bottom of the sea But first, are you experienced? Or have you ever been experienced? 
I do think that there are sections during the verse where the drums are forward and sections during the chorus where they go back to being backward again. I think it's a trade-off between the two. Um, just the the way the snare sounds, the buzz rolls and that just sound too, too much straightforward. I'd always read that it had been reversed, but it sounds like they did a forward track and a backward track. Um, but really cool. I mean, just absolutely amazing. You know, um, probably just did like a crossfade between the two when they wanted the backwards drums to come in. But uh, just an amazing song. That one piano note, just that dung, 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 that just adds so much character to the song. Imagine this being recorded today. Like it would sound so clean and it wouldn't, it just would not have the same personality um, unless they doctored it up, you know, in, in a certain way with different EQs or whatever to sound specifically different. But the sound, the, it, it just has so much character as it is, you know, um, but I absolutely love it. Um, I'm going to just jump ahead to the end and play you um, the, the very end of it, because this is very important to me. And it's very important when you're ending an album to make it end on a note that makes people uh, not just a note like but but on a end it so that people want to immediately flip it back over and go back to side one or repeat the CD or whatever it is that they're doing, depending on the medium that they're listening on. Uh, if it was cassette, fast forward it to the end so that you could flip it over and have to wait 10 seconds to be at the beginning of the uh, opening song again. But let's check it out and you'll see. Well, how can you stop on that? You got to hear something else right after that, right? Why not just go back to side A? Of course, you know, very brilliant ending, very haunting. I love it. I want more. I want to chase that song because it's just so good. I love the fade out on it. Um, I think it's great to, to do a fade out on the last song on an album. I think that's part of why you want more, is if, especially if it's like a, a you know, a, a song that you just want to hear more of or you want to go where it's going into the fade. Uh, that just makes you feel like you need more. You know, it's it's almost a, a marketing gimmick in a way, but uh, certainly works. And uh, I love the ending of that. I love that that last note. Um, there's some really killer solo work on this song too. Um, some of the best on the album. Um, it's just such a passionate song. I, I love the line. We didn't get it in the clip, but um, drop into my van so I can appear in the distance. I hear them calling our name. And then there's these reverse symbols that come in. Uh, it just, just the structure is just fantastic. I don't know how much of it was luck. You know, let's uh, record a drum track. We'll flip it over. We'll uh, do some stuff on top of it. And, you know, I, I don't know how it came together, but all I can say is what we get in the end, I think is something that we don't get a lot of. I don't know how much people really experiment with stuff like that today. I don't hear it. Um, if they do, there's probably bands that do, and, and they're just album tracks, you know, and maybe we don't get to hear them as much, but certainly um, something to, to think about. Because I think we've really just, we utilize the technology, but we don't really push the boundaries anymore. You know, we, oh, I've got a plugin that can do this, or I've got a plugin that can do that. But what if you just had to do something completely off the grid of a plugin or off the grid of digital, you know, use mics to record it, you do something different. Um, I think that's something that uh, could be revisited a little bit. But I love the song. I love the album. If you couldn't tell by how excited I've been throughout the entire podcast, to uh, talk about each of these songs or most of the songs, because a couple of them, like I said, there wasn't too much to say, but um, this is such an important album for me. So fantastic. And as I flip through my little record box and see that little gold streak at the top where this album sits, um, it just makes me smile because this is a, an amazing album. 
certainly showed me so much about musical possibility, much like the way that Cirque du Soleil would come to do some years later when I went to my first Cirque du Soleil show and I saw Mystere at Treasure Island. Um, just the the sonic possibilities, the writing structures, the the lack of structure, the the you know no boundaries feeling to what you can create and the sounds and just just absolutely just mind blowing to me. And this this album was very much the same. I wish I could have experienced this when it very first came out, like in 1967. You're like, whoa, who's this Jimi Hendrix guy? And you know they they start playing Purple Haze at the record store or whatever, and you're like, oh, I got to get this album. And then you take it home, and I, I can't imagine you know your jaw not just being on the floor the whole time you're listening to this album because, like I said, apart from some stuff the Beatles did, there really wasn't a whole lot like this out there. Um, it was a lot of four four or three four standard uh, pop. There was you know really depressing country and all that, but not, um, not a lot of stuff outside of that. So this was really a groundbreaking kind of thing. And a, a big part, I think, of why Hendrix is heralded as one of the greatest ever. Yes, he was an amazing guitar player, but look at the songwriting capabilities of what these guys did. Um, I think that had so much to do with it. I will add too, if you guys like this, um, now this is coming out when like uh, mid-July, so around the end of the month, um, the 27th and 28th, I am covering an album for Cherry Red Records by Andrew Gold. I'm breaking it up into a two-part episode. I already know that because I already recorded it. Like I said, I did these out of sequence um, called The Fraternal Order of the All. And it is Greetings from Planet Love. A tr- and it's really a tribute to, um, you know, bands like The Birds, The Beatles, The Beach Boys. There's definitely some Hendrix feel in there as well. So if you like this, you might want to hang on and check that out uh, later on in the month. You can also go right to Cherry Red Records right now and just type in a search for Andrew Gold and uh, the Fraternal Order of the All. Greetings from Planet Love will come up. You can pre-order it now. Um, It also is on uh, iTunes. I don't know if there's clips yet, but um, you may check it out there. It's basically like this epic style of music, but with newer recordings. So it does have that clean facet to it but it definitely has the feel of the late 60s. It's a a really amazing album. There's 20 songs on it and uh, definitely worth a listen if you dug this one. So thank you guys for hanging with me through all the excitement, how much I love this song and and all that. Um, It's really just such a treat to uh, go back and listen to this album. It's been a while because I don't listen to music a whole lot, but this has been just an absolute joy to uh, revisit and uh, share with you guys, share my memories and my appreciation and uh, all the wise with you. So thank you for, um, for checking it out. I do have another special episode coming up in a couple of days, reviewing another album on release day for cherry red records. Stay tuned for that on Friday. In the meantime, have a great day, guys. Take care. Cheers. <laughs>